Hello, and welcome to St. Sinners and Salvage Book, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsberg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding the casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. This week, with the election just days away, we'll look at the state of races around the country and what they can tell us about the future direction of the country and then saliency of election denialism as a voting issue. We'll have two guests today. First, we'll speak with Matt Rhodes, a veteran of three presidential campaigns, who's also helped numerous congressional and state and local efforts, and who now is closely tracking congressional campaigns in 2022 around the country for his clients at CGCN, a Washington communications and lobbying firm. And then we'll hear from Amy Gardner, who covers voting issues for the Washington Post and is paying particularly close attention to candidates making doubts about elections accuracy a main plank of their campaign. Matt, welcome. Good to have you here. Um, you've, uh, you've spent your career working at the highest levels of political organizations and campaigns, particularly as campaign manager for Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign research director for the Bush-Cheney 2004 effort. Now in your current role of advising clients, you talk to a lot of people in key jurisdictions and read a lot of polls. So based on your vast experience as a, as a wily political operative, what do you see going on now? Well, first off, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm psyched that you've entered the world of podcasts. Um, I think that's a great thing for the podcast industry that you're involved in it now. Um, you know, when I start to think about these elections, especially when I think about them from, in, from my private sector clients and try to take my red jersey off and predict what really is going to happen, I like to look at what issues are really, truly driving voters and kind of tune out the noise that's on cable TV and all the anger and everything that's going on on social media platforms. And I was struck by a poll, a couple polls, one from The Economist that came out in late August. And they found that three in five Americans believe the US is currently in an economic recession. And I know there's some debate. I am not an economist. Some economists say we're not in a recession right now, but if I'm running a campaign and three out of the five voters in my district or state think that they're in a recession. And in my opinion, we're in a recession. And then I was looking at some Pew data, and Pew's pretty nonpartisan for the most part. And they looked at a huge swath of registered voters who intend on voting in the 2022 midterm elections and what issues drive them and what's gonna impact their vote. And the number one issue, and this came out at the beginning of September, was the economy at 77%. And if you go down the list, at 60% is violent crime. And down at 56% is the abortion issue, which is a sharp, sharp rise. It was 43% in the spring. Um, but you look at issues like the economy, you look at issues like crime, this is what is really impacting the psyche of the voter. And sometimes I think, Ben, you know, you and I live in Washington, D.C. We're very fortunate to live in an economic bubble. Uh, I know you're doing work at Stanford. That's another economic bubble that's doing well. But out there 
in middle America, you know, gas prices are going back up. You know, if you're a family that's living in a rural part of this country and gas is over $4 a gallon, that truly impacts your life. And I think sometimes the economic bubbles in this country forget how tough it is out there. And right now, the economy is the driving factor. And the person that's taking the most responsibility right now for the challenges we're facing in the economy is the current president, Joe Biden. And I'd like to go to Real Clear Politics. I'll do a plug for Real Clear Politics, Ben. Uh, I don't get as much internal polling data as I used to when I was working on campaigns. I love Real Clear because it shows all the public data out there and allows you to look at trends. And right now, the president's disapproval rating is at nearly 55%. Um, that's a report card if you got back in the day, Ben, you wouldn't have brought home to mom. And so a lot of the blame and responsibility right now for the economic challenges that Americans are facing is, is being put at the, the doorstep of President Biden. And that's gonna have a profound impact when you start to think about predictions in the midterm elections. So um, as you're uh, looking out at the country, that sounds like a recipe for a pretty good Republican night. Yeah, it does. I feel like if you're working on a campaign and you know, message matters, if you're in a competitive state or a com competitive congressional district and you're a Republican campaign and you're driving a message around the economy, crime, maybe occasionally sprinkling in a little border security, which resonates with a core group of the base in the Republican Party, it's a recipe for victory. Um, and I do think, and you're starting to see this shift, obviously in the news media, so it's not like we're, we're breaking hot, hot news right now. Um, you know, th there's been a turn in this election. Back in the spring, it seemed like this was going to be a referendum on President Biden and his handling of the economy. Uh, and it seemed like almost certain that Republicans were going to pick up a huge amount of seats. Expectations probably got away from them. And then there was the Supreme Court decision that I referenced in the Pew data. And that brought a lot of energy back to the Democrat Party. So there was a period in August where it seemed like this race is a lot more competitive uh, than it would have been otherwise. And that's certainly true. Uh, it is more competitive than it would have been back in the spring. But at the end of the day, you can kind of see things starting to shift. Look, if I needed to make a prediction right now on what the outcome would be in the U.S. House, I've been doing a bunch of panels uh, in the last few weeks, and my number was 15 pickups for the Republican Party, which would make the Republicans the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. But as I see the race moving closer and closer to election, uh, I feel myself consistently pushing that number up a little bit higher. Uh, I, I'd probably put us right now at between 18 and 20 seats for a pickup on the Republican side. Um, there will be a narrative, I guarantee. Ben, you've been a part of this uh, circus, political circus for a long time. The dominant media will come back um, later, closer to election, and say how everything is tightening again, and maybe Republicans aren't going to pull away. But ultimately, I, I, I think that they are on a path to win back the House. But to be honest, this is kind of expected. This is what happens historically. 
uh, for incumbent presidents. Their, their party tends to lose seats in Congress almost every midterm election. Yep, that's certainly true. So we'll come back to some specific House races in a moment. Um, but this podcast is about elections and the future of democracy for the shockingly high percentage of people not believing the outcome of elections. And of course, how widespread that belief is depends a lot on who actually um, gets elected. Uh, do you see from your talking to people and reading of data that voting uh, and democracy issues are a salient part of how people are pulling levers? Or is this one that we need to keep watch over, uh, but is not going to be uh, a mandate issue for this election? I don't think it's one of the issues that's going to impact one of these competitive House districts or one of these competitive Senate races and or gubernatorial race, maybe more of an impact at the gubernatorial level. But I certainly think, Ben, it's an important issue. And I, I like to remind folks, you know, there's a lot of attention drawn on, on the Republican side, but this is a bipartisan challenge. And if you look back at who started this, you know, election denial and arguing about who won and who lost, you know, look back to, to Senator Bernie Sanders. He wasn't the best loser uh, when he lost the primary for the Democratic presidential nomination back in 2016. And then I would also keep an eye, Ben, on, on some races this cycle on the Democrat side, where we could see some of these challenges. You know, four years ago, it was Stacey Abrams in Georgia who denied and fought the outcome of the gubernatorial election in the state of Georgia and kind of was a precursor to what we're dealing with right now. Um, she's in a race against the person who beat her last time, Governor Kemp. And I, I think, you know, in all likelihood, Governor Kemp is going to win. I think he could win by as many as four or five points. Um, it'll be interesting to see what Stacey Abrams does and how she handles this potential defeat and if she's going to concede, because she certainly didn't last time. And I believe it's a foregone conclusion that she did lose. And she's kind of become this uh, professional candidate where she's nonstop running. And I feel like some of the people, some of her supporters, and again, this is why I go back to this being a bipartisan challenge, Ben, like they just, they just can't imagine a world where Stacey Abrams would lose uh, in this race. And so if it happens, I think that that's one to monitor on our side. And, you know, I, I don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but I, I think you're going to see a lot of our candidates where you think that some of these challenges could happen are going to pull away in these closing days and win by a comfortable margin. And so I almost think it's not going to be as, as much of a challenge as it's been in the past, Ben, on the Republican side, because of that winning helps. So tell us which races you're looking at specifically to, um, to sort of uh, prove the point. What should people be watching for on election night or in the days after? On the House side, and I get asked this a lot, Ben, if you're watching, you know, CNN or Fox, hopefully Fox, definitely not MSDNC, but um, if you're looking for your early fix and you want to know where the, the country's headed, the Virginia polls will close at 7.30, and they usually put out their numbers pretty quick. So keep an eye on Virginia 7, which 
And I'm going to do another plug like I did for Real Clear. Cook Political Report, to me, they're the gold standard. Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report does an amazing job. And she's probably the most non-biased person that, that covers politics. She ranks all these races, lean Democrat, Republican toss-up, et cetera. The site's free. Go check it out. But there's a couple races in the lean Democrat category, including Virginia 7, Congress, Democratic Congresswoman Spanberger's there. If she loses uh, and we find out around 745 on election night, that's probably a bad sign uh, for the Democrat Party. I think there's some other races to watch to kind of see where the number goes. In Pennsylvania 8, it's a Democrat toss-up race. Congressman, Democratic Congressman Cartwright's running against a, uh, a young man named Jim Bognett. Uh, this district includes the, the cities of Hazleton, Wilkes-Barre, and Scranton. It happens to be where the president, uh, President Joe Biden, was born. Yeah. To me, that's if we don't pick up that race, then that means that the Democrats are probably having uh, a stronger night than some are predicting uh, right now in, in the media. So those are some races. If you want your early fix and kind of get a, an idea and want to go to bed early uh, and not stay up to midnight watching the cable news networks, where the House is headed uh, from a majority standpoint. Um, very helpful. Uh, and so in the House, you have Republicans up 15 or so, at least in 18 to 20, potentially. Yeah. Let's uh, turn Let's turn to the Senate. What uh, What particular races are you looking at there? Yeah, ultimately, I, I think the Senate's much tougher for Republicans, in part because the map's much tougher. There's a lot of uh, seats that Republicans have to defend. On top of it, um, you know, there's been some candidates that we've nominated in some of these races uh, that some may say, Ben, have underperformed uh, as candidates. But that said, I, I think ultimately we're going to end up with a majority in the U.S. Senate. I, I think that we're going to have a 51 Republican uh, majority of Senate Republicans. When I look at some of the races and key ones to watch, we already touched upon Georgia. Obviously, a lot of people are, are, are watching Georgia uh, with the performance that I think Governor Kemp is going to have. And these governors are having a lot of impact on some of these Senate races, uh, sometimes in a helpful way, sometimes in a not so helpful way on the Republican side. Georgia has this, this crazy election law where if a candidate, neither candidate wins 50%, then they have a runoff and the runoff would be on December 6th. I, I hate this rule, even when it benefits Republicans. It certainly didn't benefit Republicans last time. It ended up creating a Democrat 50-50 uh, um, majority uh, in the Senate last, last go around. But that, that race is headed towards a runoff, in my opinion. Um, so it's almost like you got to move on beyond that and wait to, for what happens on December 6th. So then I start to think, like, what's the big race to kind of watch to see if Republicans can pull off this majority? And I would keep an eye on Nevada, Ben. I think that's a race that's kind of gone a little bit more under the radar. Everyone's always talking about Pennsylvania and Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker, et cetera. I think there's probably a little bit of uh, East Coast bias. We don't pay attention to, to races out, out West like we should. Adam Laxalt's the Republican candidate, uh, strong candidate. Incumbent Senator Cortez Masto, I think she's run, you, you know, she's a Democrat. She's run a really good campaign, raised lots of money, 
spent a lot of money, really tough negative ads in the state of Nevada. Uh, but I think that's a real big pickup opportunity for Republicans. And I feel like if Adam Laxalt's able to win there, that's going to help big time on the path to a Republican majority. You think about what I talked about at the beginning. Again, the cable news gets caught up about all the drama of Washington, D.C. and people lighting their hair on fire. Uh, the economy out in the state of Nevada is probably, you know, between tourism and everything else that they depend on out in that state. It's just a tough environment. So someone like Senator Cortez Masto, no matter how well she's running as a candidate, it's very difficult uh, in a midterm with an unpopular president and a slowing economy to pull off victory. So that's one I would keep an eye on that I feel like not as many people are keeping an eye on. There's also some sleepers out there. I'll throw out some of the sleepers. You know, a lot of people are gonna pay attention to, to Colorado, Senator Bennett, um, the Democrat out there. Republicans have a great candidate, Joe O'Day. Colorado's a very, very tough state, uh, purple at best. But that's one to keep an eye on. And the big sleeper that that's people are starting to percolate this Washington state race, which I'm looking at Cook Political Report right now. Uh, Patty Murray's the incumbent. She's been there forever. Um, solid D on Cook Political Report. If, if Republicans win Washington state, oh my, that then, then we're having a historic uh, 1994 level type night, uh, which I don't think we will, but it's exciting if you're a Republican talking about shocking the world in the state of Washington, for sure. Yeah, and of course, if you're watching on election night, uh, some of the most contentious states will not get their results uh, in a close race for a number of days. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are key Senate races. They take a long time to come in because of when they start processing absentee ballots. Nevada historically takes a long time so you're really looking at Georgia and Arizona and North Carolina as being the, the states you'll be able to look at on Tuesday, November 8th, and, and be able to draw some early judgment about it. Yeah, I feel like people are always shocked, Ben, to that point. You know, everyone wants instant gratification these days, and they want everything wrapped up on election night by the time CNN and Fox sign off at the end of the night. But there's always these races out west. Um, there's always races that are really close. It seems like there's always a couple house races that a, a week or so later, they're still counting votes. There's still early absentee votes coming in. This happens all the time. There's some incumbent that gets knocked off and you don't find out about it for a week and a half and everyone's shocked. So the final numbers, it'll take a little bit of time, uh, especially in a close Senate. I think we'll know ultimately who's controlling the house, but there'll be some, some races that are kind of still out there floating. Um, but it happens every time. And I feel like everyone's always so shocked. Like, yeah, there's going to be there's going to be some close races and there's going to be some races that we're going to have to show a little patience on the 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 absentee uh, side of things. Yep, I think that's true. And of course, in terms of keeping track of election denial is an issue. The people who are elected to the U.S. Senate this time will be in office when the 20. 24 election is certified in Congress. The House will go through uh, another election cycle, of course, but incumbents have a pretty high rate of, um, of re-election. 
And then uh, for those of you keeping track of this, you'll want to spend some attention uh, on the, the governor's races, particularly in the battleground states of Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, and Nevada are really, um, really going to be the main ones to, to look at on, uh, on election night. So Matt, any final words on uh, the state of our elections or electoral process and what folks should be looking for? Look, I I try to be optimistic about uh, our country and our elections. I have faith in the American people. Uh, I've won, I've been on the winning side of campaigns and the losing side of campaigns. I still have faith in the in the people. Our candidates should have faith in the people. They should also have faith in, in the system. Um, we know how to do these elections. Uh, there's a lot of really good people um, that work hard, are very professional, and are only focused on doing what's right. I wanna be relatively optimistic and think that we will have decisions made people will know who won and lost there will always be a little bit of uncertainty in a race here and there we're probably going to have a runoff in georgia that everyone in america will get be sick of hearing about by the time it's concluded <laughs> on december 6th um but I, I maintain my optimism in the people and the people that uh handle our elections in this country well, Matt Rhodes of CGCN, thank you so much for speaking with us. Joining me now is Amy Gardner, the Washington Post national reporter for voting. Amy, who recently accepted the Pulitzer Prize along with her colleagues at the Post for their coverage of the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, has been reporting extensively on the candidates on the November ballot who deny or question the outcome of the 2020 election. Amy recently was in Las Vegas to look at those races from the ground in Nevada. And Amy, we really appreciate your, uh, your coming on to tell us about the phenomenon of election deniers on the ballot. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. So you've reported that there are about 300 candidates who deny or question the outcome of the last presidential election on the ballot in November. Uh, you've also reported that election deniers uh, are on the ballot in 48 of the 50 states and make up more than half of all the Republicans running for congressional and state offices in the midterm. Amy, has the country ever seen anything like this? I don't think that they, we have. I really don't. I think this is a remarkable phenomenon that uh, has only grown since former President Trump contested the results in 2020. Uh, and I think uh, that's the one of the biggest takeaways, actually, of our work looking at the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. We look not only at the day and the run-up to the day, but what happened in the months after. And our conclusion was that that day did not mark a beginning or an end, but really a, a middle. Uh, this phenomenon has only grown, uh, Donald Trump has only grown more emboldened uh, to demand not only loyalty to him, but to the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. And he, his endorsements in you know, scores and scores of races around the, the nation 
uh, uh, were predicated on loyalty to that idea that the election was rigged. And so it became a litmus test that decided the outcomes in many, many, many races. And the results are clear in our findings. It's a majority of nominees in these important uh, offices around the country. So the, the success of the election denier candidates will uh, probably play a pretty big role in whether Donald Trump decides to run in 2024. So what, what races will you be looking at particularly? Well, you mentioned that um, I've been in Nevada, which is true. I, I, I traveled to Nevada to look specifically at the Secretary of State's race here. The gentleman named Jim Marchant, former state legislator, uh, won the Republican nomination and was a leader of a movement uh, to uh, encourage election denying candidates to run for Secretary of State offices around the country. He is also the person who um, partnered up with some of the leading election denying um, so-called experts, uh, people like Colonel Phil Waldron and Russ Ramsland uh, in going around the country and to local governments in Nevada uh, to encourage local uh, elected officials, boards of commissioners, that kind of thing to change the way they run elections. And he succeeded in one county in Nevada where I spent some time this month, uh, Nye County, where Pahrump is about an hour west of Las Vegas, where they are hand counting their ballots this fall. Uh, and that movement is growing around the country. And so this gentleman who is pushing this idea that machines, the Dominion voting systems machines that President Trump um, you know, criticized without uh, evidence that they uh, are, are not functioning properly or don't count accurately. Uh, the, the, this idea that these machines can't be trusted is growing uh, and is, is uh, affecting policy at the local level around the country. So, so Marshawn is one of the leaders of that movement. He's running. Uh, the polls show that he's actually ahead of the Democratic nominee, a gentleman named Cisco Aguilar. Uh, all of the statewide races in Nevada, as I'm sure you know, are extremely close right now. It's very, very difficult to predict what's going to happen from the governor to the Senate race down to Secretary of State. Uh, but, but this is a really important one because he would uh, have uh, authority to guide local election officials and encourage them to run their elections in a certain way. He also would have a certain amount of say-so on the certification of results in Nevada uh, and has vowed that if he had been in office in 2020, he would have attempted to block certification of Joe Biden's victory in Nevada. Those are certainly significant tasks that the chief elections officer has. Um, so uh, as, as you're sitting in the post, newsroom on the evening of November 8th and probably morning of the 9th. What other races besides Nevada will you be particularly following for this election denier phenomenon? I think the other big one that has a really direct role over election administration is the Secretary of State uh, uh, contest in Arizona. Uh, and, and actually the governor's race in Arizona is really important too. So uh, Mark Fincham, a state lawmaker in Arizona is running for secretary of state. And he is also, he's, he's partnered with Jim Marchant, the gentleman in Nevada to encourage other election deniers to run for secretary of state. He also has said he would not have certified Joe Biden's victory in Arizona in 2020. Uh, and Carrie Lake is the Republican nominee for governor. She has not only said that she would not have certified the results or sent the certificates of ascertainment, as I know you know they're called, the documents that go to Washington with the electors votes on them uh, for counting if, uh, at the very final step of, of 
making a presidential election result formal. Uh, but she has actually said that the current Secretary of State, a Democrat named Katie Hobbs, who is her opponent in the gubernatorial race, should go to jail for certifying the result. So that's another one that is uh, is on my radar. Uh, and then uh, I'm paying very close attention to the governor's race in Pennsylvania. Uh, a gentleman named Doug Mastriano, of course, is the Republican nominee uh, running against the attorney general, the current attorney general, Josh Shapiro. Uh, he also has said uh, that he would not have certified the result. And importantly, in Pennsylvania, the Secretary of State, who runs elections, is actually an appointed office. Doug Mastriano, if he's elected governor, would have the power to appoint that uh, that person and has said that he has his eye on someone who is a leading expert on elections and who is like minded about what happened in 2020. Uh, so so those are those are the three uh, that I'm paying the closest attention to, uh, you know, around the country, although there are others as well. And of course, as your reporting has pointed out, there are many election deniers who are running for county and local offices as well that have some oversight over elections. So uh, what could an election denier on that local level do about declaring a winner in the certification of results? Well, in, uh, in most states, elections are run at the local county level. And, uh, and that is the first step of making a result official. Uh, county uh, boards, uh, typically an election board, uh, does this duty known as canvassing the results after the unofficial results come in. And those are the res results that we all typically pay attention to on the networks on the night of an election and the morning after. Those results are then sort of formally made official. It's called canvassing. They, they check to look for errors and make sure they've counted all of the precincts and all the machines and everything. Uh, and, and so uh, county boards of, of uh, you know, election officers or boards of canvassers, depending on what they're called in each state, have the ability to deny uh, the, that, that, that role. They have the ability to say, I'm not gonna certify this. I think it's fishy. That actually happened in Michigan in 2020. Uh, there is obviously a remedy for that. Uh, the courts in Michigan, for instance, this happened and is likely to happen again if there are any boards of canvassers at the county level or at the state level that choose to, uh, you know, that balk at uh, certifying results. Uh, Democrats would almost certainly immediately uh, file petitions with, uh, with state courts, state Supreme Courts, depending on the process by state, um, and demand that those boards uh, follow the law and certify the result as counted. But it's it, the fact of the suspicion that is pervasive around the country and the fact that some of these potential uh, sort of uh, rejections or, or efforts not to certify will most certainly delay the process and further feed uh, you know, the lack of faith in the um, the, the integrity of our election process in this country. Yeah, which is really one of the worrisome things about it. And of course, when there's not a presidential election, the determination of who is certified as the winner gets really, really different because legislatures and Congress, for example, are the judges of its own members. So there are certainly instances where a majority in Congress has rejected the popular vote uh, winner or seeming 
popular vote winner. So this is going to play out much differently from the way 2020 did in terms of a national conversation about election denial. Um, so as you've gone around the country covering election denial and the phenomenon of it, do you believe that it's an issue that's salient to voters? In other words, where on the panoply of issues, including things like inflation and uh, Ukraine, does election denial come in? Is it moving voters? It's an interesting question, and it's one of the questions that I was looking to try to answer uh, during my trip to Nevada. Uh, and, I, and I was able to witness two events that gave me a little bit of insight into that. The first was a kickoff for a canvas uh, for Democratic candidates at the top of the ticket, um, it was uh, it was a, a a Saturday morning and uh, maybe it was a Sunday morning. Sorry, and uh, uh, 150 volunteers had crammed into the Democratic uh, state you know offices in Las Vegas to go door to door, knocking on voters' doors and encouraging them to turn out. The event was sponsored by NARAL. Uh, as you know, a, a pro-choice uh, organization, and and that was the salient issue for these voters: uh, the fact that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, and the fact that now the states um, have the ability and are taking advantage of that ability to uh, legislate further restrictions regarding abortion. Um, but it was interesting to see the candidates, from Steve Sisolak, the governor here. Uh, to Catherine Cortez Masto, the U.S. Senator, who's in a in a difficult re-election battle, um, they they did something very consistent. They're definitely they've they've you know crafted their message. They tried to wrap the abortion rights issue in with voting rights. Without voting rights, we don't have abortion rights. That was sort of the big rallying cry that they got the crowd to cheer. And I was struck that that was a good message. I don't know if the voting issue is quite as salient for these voters. I talked to a few of them as they were fanning out into the neighborhoods to get in their cars and go door knock. Uh, most of them were there because of the abortion issue. The second event that I went to was also really interesting and it was a poll watcher training um, sponsored by Heritage Action, um, one of the Trump affiliated uh, PACs, uh, I think America First, uh, and um, honest elections, and uh, it was quite, it was pretty well attended. I, I counted something close to a hundred people there, and they were these are conservatives who believe the election was stolen in 2020 and who are being recruited to be observers at polling locations on November 8th, and uh, and they were there for that issue. They were not there for other issues. And there were other issues that they were interested in. A woman was circulating a petition to break up the Clark County school system because they don't allow parents to opt their children out of sex ed where they're being groomed. That was the sort of language that was being used for that petition drive. So there were other issues certainly that uh, th that side of the spectrum is, is interested in, but they came to this event for the voting issue. And I thought that was interesting. That's very interesting. So. Going to that event, um, of course, one of the issues uh, about election day that's come up is weaponized poll workers and people in the polling place challenging voters. And what you heard in that session of training conservative Republican Trump poll watchers 
Um, were there any instructions that suggested there would be uh, challenges and disruptions in the polling place? I did not hear explicit instructions to disrupt. Uh, I was certainly trying to you know, pay attention because that would of course be quite newsworthy and worth sharing with our readership. Uh, what I did hear was you must watch everything. Democrats cheat. They cheat all the time. It is what they do. It's what they did in 2020. It's what they're gonna try to do in 2022. It's what they're gonna try to do in 2024. And so you must watch everything they do because they cheat. And so you could certainly make the argument that you know, that message is tantamount to encouraging disruption. It's certainly encouraging uh, very close examination. And the question becomes, at what point do, does the examination that some of these poll watchers are attempting to do get in the way of the work of the poll workers? I mean, I wanna be really clear, and I know you agree with this, poll watching is a fundamentally important part of our electoral process. It is, uh, it is, a, um, you know, it is a, an act of transparency that allows both political parties to, to be there and to lay eyes on the process. And, and that in turn, theoretically, trickles out into the electorate so that we all feel like our elections are run fairly. Uh, so I, don't, I wanna be really clear that I'm not you know, taking a stand against poll watching, but to, to instruct your poll watchers that the other side cheats, that's all they do, that's what they're about, is not accurate. And not that cheating doesn't happen, but there's no evidence that it's happened on a widespread scale. Uh, and it's damaging, I think, to the process. Yeah, certainly potentially is, of course, if you go through election day and that army of poll observers and, and poll watchers actually don't find any cheating, then that validates the election and takes away a lot of the steam of the election denial uh, argument. So it is certainly one of the issues that everyone will be watching carefully for on, um, on election day. So I wanna go back to something you said at the beginning about January 6th and how, while that is an event on which we focus, there are historical antecedents. It didn't start with January 6th and didn't end. Could you uh, explain some of the historical antecedents? Well, so what I was referring to was uh, the the way that Donald Trump began really in 2016, uh, maybe even in 2015 when he declared his candidacy for president, uh, uh, began laying the groundwork for a rigged election. Uh, many, many Americans, including arguably Donald Trump, did not think he was going to win in November of 2016, and uh, and he did, of course. And uh, you may recall that he, ahead of the election, began laying the groundwork for contesting the result and claiming that undocumented immigrants had voted, three million had voted in California, I think was one of the claims. and. Uh, and, and then he won, so of course those allegations sort of fizzled out. Uh, and then leading up to uh, the election of 2020, remember the pandemic uh, came into our lives in March roughly of 2020 and uh, elections were deeply, deeply disrupted around the country, primaries were disrupted. 
uh, mail balloting was expanded around the country to enable people to vote who were uh, uncomfortable standing in line before there was a vaccine. Uh, it was the peak, the beginning really of the pandemic at that time. Uh, and, and Trump began um, sowing doubt about mail balloting. And I'm sure you'll appreciate this as someone who uh, was you know, a, a Republican election lawyer during the period when Republicans were the ones encouraging absentee voting in places like Florida. Uh, that had been a, a kind of a bipartisan uh, tool for getting voters out and had been championed by Republicans. Uh, but Donald Trump turned that on its head and um, began criticizing mail balloting uh, and you know, sort of wove the issue in with um, uh, the politics of the pandemic and anti-mask feelings. And so it sort of fed into uh, the, the sentiments of his supporters, you should just go vote in person to heck with the you know, pandemic. Uh, and uh, and we can't trust mail balloting. And we know most Democrats are gonna vote this way and so it's rigged. So that began way back in the spring of 2020 uh, and continued on throughout the year and was one of the foundations of many of the legal challenges that Trump and his campaign and allied organizations um, built their legal case uh, in the days and weeks after the election to try to challenge the results in, particularly in six of the, those six top contested states in, in 2020. So that's what I'm referring to when I talk about the groundwork that he laid. And of course, his rhetoric only escalated in the weeks and months after the election uh, to the point where he was encouraging his supporters to to protest, to come to Washington, to, to not you know, let this election be stolen. Uh, the January 6th committee, of course, has in you know, granular detail laid out the ways in which his rhetoric directly encouraged certain people to come to Washington that day and how it built and crescendoed in the days leading up to January 6th. And here we are with the issue soon to be on the ballot. So final question, Amy Gardner from the Washington Post. Um, you described and have reported on the significant percentage of the population, roughly 30%, who uh, are election deniers, who don't have faith and trust in our election. And my question is, over the past 23 months since the 2020 election, the Washington Post and many other news outlets have consistently called out uh, election denial as the big lie. Yet that 30% number has not gone down, as you noted. Um, how come? I mean, I've thought about this a lot and I, I, I think it's important, particularly for people who do not believe that the 2020 election was rigged or stolen, to understand that there there are millions and millions of Americans who thought President Trump was a good president and did good things. They liked his policies. They liked his tough stance on the Southern border and immigration and tax cuts. Uh, and, um, and I think when someone who you trust and who you like as a politician tells you something, you tend to believe them. Uh, and so I think it's important to remember that uh, you know, you talk about the big lie, the people who support that 
that falsehood have also been lied to. But that's a very difficult thing to admit about someone who you trust and admire. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, many of the people who believe uh, in election denialism are victims too. Uh, they've, they, they've, been, um, they've been lied to. Uh, and, uh, and one of the challenges actually for me and my colleagues is to sort of sort through who is kind of a victim of this lie and who is a perpetrator of it, right? Because there are people who know it's not true, but spread it anyway for power or for money, uh, you know, to, to have proximity to Trump. But then there are people who really believe it. And that's a really difficult uh, task for, for journalism to sort of sort through who believes it and who, who is using it. Yes, and of course, it's a highlight of our very polarized society. Uh, and so finding the way out of this morass, which is probably not sustainable for a democracy, is one of those subjects we will uh, be exploring a lot in the future, both in your reporting and, and what happens in the academic world as well. Um, Amy Gardner from the Washington Post, uh, a recent uh, Pulitzer Prize winner along with her team at the Washington Post. Thanks so much for, uh, for being with us. Thank you, Ben. It was really nice to be here. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.